Welcome uh, once again uh, to uh, Bayview Glen Church this morning. For those of you who are in the room, all 10 of you, uh, I wanted to first say to our staff and volunteers and those who are here this morning, uh, you guys are awesome. I am so grateful for you. Your church is grateful for you to come and do this this morning so that we can worship together no matter where we are. So uh, thank you, thank you, thank you for your dedicated service. And, and please clap for yourselves because that's a very good thing. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Nice. Yeah, that was enthusiastic. Well done, everybody. Hey, uh, I just wanted to address real quick as your pastor, and I'm looking straight into the camera now because uh, I want you to see my face and hear my heart. Uh, I wanted to address as your pastor what's going on with this uh, global pandemic, and, and it's just with three really critical Bible truths. You ready? Here's the first one. The church is not a building you come to, but a family that you belong to. I actually borrowed that from an all-church email or a children's email that was sent out to Bayview Kids parents this week. The church is not a building you come to, but a family you belong to. I really love that statement, and it's extraordinarily, extraordinarily biblical. So what that means is in the comfort of your own home, even if you're wearing PJs right now, you are the church even if you are not inside the church building. And so we are so grateful of what God has done in uh, setting the church on fire for his mission in the world. And, and we're grateful that even if this building disappeared, uh, not, not just if we were not able to inhabit it, even if it disappeared, the church would still be moving the mission of God forward in the world because it's not a building you come to, it's a family you belong to. Here's Bible truth number two. The church is resilient. The church is resilient. Uh, Jesus even promised that the gates of hell would not prevail against his church. And so I think COVID probably falls underneath that. In fact, for the last 2,000 years, it's moments like these where the church has really uh, flourished and, and thrived, not just remain neutral, but when the church believes big things about God and we continue to trust him for his provision, uh, we see the, church, uh, resi- the church's resiliency throughout the last 2,000 years. And, and, and here's the third truth is this, that uh, in, in, despite present circumstances, uh, God is in control. Despite present appearances, God is in control. This is what we've been talking about for the last six weeks in our study of Daniel. This is what we're going to continue to talk about this morning, that uh, no matter what it is, even if a sparrow falls to the ground, It does not do so outside of the providential will of your heavenly father. He is not surprised. He's not shocked. He's not scared because he is sovereign and he he is in control. So three truths. The church is not a building you come to, but it's a family you belong to. That means we can just keep being the church and having church over the next couple of weeks. Uh, Number two. That, uh, that the church is, is resilient, and it's in times like these where we see the church thrive. And finally, God is sovereign, and despite present appearances, he is in control. And it's really that truth that has been the basis and the foundation for this study in, in Daniel. And so without further ado, I wanted to introduce to you our guest speaker this morning, who's going to talk a little bit about that truth. Our guest speaker is named Sawyer Bullock. Sawyer did his uh, undergraduate degree at Tyndale University in philosophy. He's now doing a master's degree in philosophy at Ryerson. It's no Arizona State, but I hear it's okay. Um, So you can laugh at that. Thank you for the 10 people in here in the room that laugh at that. Sawyer uh, is uh, rightly dividing the word today. We've worked so hard together on this sermon, and he has some really fantastic things that God has put on his heart to say to our congregation. And as he mentioned this week, when we decided to suspend our corporate worship services, as an introvert, this is really an introvert's dream, Sawyer, is it not? This is perfect for him. And so those of you in the room, those of you watching online, would you welcome uh, with me Sawyer Bullock? 
Uh, good morning, everyone. Great to be here with you all physically or online. This week, we're going through Daniel 7. If you have your Bible, actually open up to Daniel 7. A physical copy is best because you can see it all laid out in front of you. Digital's fine. If you have neither, we'll have it up on the screen. While you're doing that, I want to show you a cool map showing 1939. Think World War II. This is Poland. And Poland at the time was actually partitioned. It was divided up between the Soviet Union, Soviet Russia, and Nazi Germany. And these two groups were not on the same side of the war. They were on opposing sides. So this this section down the middle of where they actually meet, it was not static. It was not stable, but shifted quite frequently. So if you lived in one of these small towns along this border zone... By staying in one place, you would be Polish, and then maybe that that year you would be German. Later on in that year, you would be Russian, and then German, and then Russian, and then later on you'd be back to Polish, all by living in the same place. And you can imagine, like, practically the challenges that that would bring. Who knows? The holidays would always be changing, and the languages on the signs and the back of the cereal boxes, I'm sure. But even personally, on a practical level of understanding a culture and trying to maintain some integrity that way, or even as a person. Who am I? Where am I? What's going on? I'm not Polish, by the way. Um, But when you go to Costco, you can get the hot dogs or the Polish sausages, and I always opt for the Polish sausage. I am a man with a liberal arts degree, which is why I eat $2 sausages. That's besides the point. (laughs) But it's, it's easy to see the connections here between the people of Poland and the people of God. For the past several weeks, we've been going through the book of Daniel, looking at God's people brought into Babylonian exile, brought into a new place, and the friction that can occur between God's people and their values and the place where they currently occupy. They were strangers in a strange land. And so this is what we're gonna be looking at today. And it's easy to imagine that during this time, the people were wondering, have the promises of God failed. Their land was taken, their temple was destroyed, their king left them, and they were brought into Babylon. Babylon, pardon me. And so chapter seven of this specifically marks a different literary genre. We were going from the narrative structure of Daniel and the courts and his homies and all that's going on there. And now we're moving to the apocalyptic genre. It's gonna be a strange chapter of evil hybrid beasts and people riding on clouds. If this is your first week tuning in, you picked a weird one. But as, as we dive into this challenging, but I think very entertaining material, it's important to keep the main theme of Daniel in mind, which is that despite present appearances, God is in control. And so that is the, the guiding light. That's our North Star as we walk through this more challenging passage today. And the, the truth is the same. Throughout the chapters, throughout the books, actually there was an early church father named Augustine, Augustine of Hippo. He was a bishop. He said it very, very well. He said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. The word restless in German actually translates into angst. And we are an angsty people. So the purpose of Daniel 7 is the encouragement of a hard-pressed restless people. And I think that we are a hard-pressed and restless people as well. 
So the message of Daniel 7 is timely, it's pertinent, it's very relevant, even if we did this message a year ago, but, but this week there's, there's some divine appointments to be had here. I'm part of a generation, um, I'm 24, I don't know if I'm millennial, I'm certainly not a boomer, that's all I know. <laughs> I don't get the discount at Swiss Chalet yet, that's all I know, <laughs> counting down the days. Anyways, um, oh, where was I? I'm part of a generation that doesn't have an optimistic outlook about the future. The past sucks, the present is awful, and the future's going to be worse. Wheat, dairy, sugar, the flu shot, global warming, ISIS, coronavirus, the refugee crisis, social media, the housing market, nuclear warfare, school shootings, civil rights, human's rights, women's rights, trans rights, gay rights, my rights, your rights. We should feel well at home in the apocalyptic genre because our news cycle would put it to shame. And it's taking a toll on us. It's interesting the, the data that's being reflected on these things. On Google, you can actually search the, the time plot period. You can graph how certain topics have been searched online. So this is the result specifically for the word anxiety and how much it has been searched over time. This data isn't even super relevant. It's only up to 2017. This just means that we're thinking about it more as a culture. And that could be a good thing, raising awareness. I have no problem with that. But it's certainly on our mind. It's relevant in many ways, but it's actually also being reflected in other ways with our young people, with students. We can also see it on the rise, I think. This is more of American data. Student depression is on the rise. The orange line is 12 to 17 year olds, also 18 to 25, 26 to 49, and 50 plus is actually going down. You guys have been doing good. Cool, I don't know, I have no point there. <laughs> And the, the final piece of data, you can also see this infiltrating the workforce. If you look at the United States military, you can also see an increase in that. Incidence rates of anxiety states, stress, active component, U.S. Armed Forces. This only also goes up to 2012. But we can see a dramatic increase. And it's killing us. Literally. Last graph, I promise. This is in Canada, the number of hospitalization rates due to self-harm inflicted self-harm. And for females 14 to 17, it's gone from around 30% almost to 55. If you are a teenage girl, one of the worst things you can do for yourself is to have social media. I sound crazy, but the ball don't lie. So you just, you know, let the spirit work on that with you. <laughs> but we are a hard-pressed, restless people. And so I hope that I've persuaded you that this text, this passage, is worth the work. This genre, the, the apocalyptic genre, it's rich in analogies. A lot of the truths are put forward by an analogy, metaphor or simile, and simply put, to reason by analogy is showing two things that are unlike, you bring them together and you draw out a truth where they meet. So if I say, uh, God is a lion, you say, heresy, God has no tail. Burn him. No, no, no. Cool your jets, right? If I say God is a lion, it means that perhaps God is strong, he's fierce, he's courageous, terrifying, right? Or, or if I say, no, I'll leave it at that. I'll leave it at that. So as we enter into this passage, there's going to be a lot of imagery. Nations of the world are not evil hybrid beasts, well, they are, but not literally. <laughs> and so as we go through them, it's important to keep this in mind. And over the years, uh, various 
Christians, in, t- in trying to interpret this, have leaned too hard on the imagery and in many ways tried to pull out details and information that don't seem to be there. And so there's, we're going to look at four different beasts and people have said, oh, these beasts are, this is Nero, this is Hitler, uh, this is Putin and many wild and fanciful things that I don't even think are helpful. Many commenters have actually contended that the four beasts are purposefully vague to get across a general point. Here's a good quote from the commenter Trumper Longman. I'm going to read this for you. Though the visions begin with the Babylonian Empire, I'll explain that more later, its multivalent imagery intends to prohibit definite historical identifications with the remaining three beasts. Rather, the fourfold pattern simply informs us that evil kingdoms will succeed one another until the end of time. So if you came today looking to find out when the world's going to end, I'm not going to tell you. Tune in next week and Lucas will tell you that. Uh, We also see many times Jesus teaches by analogy. That's what the parables are. If you read it and said, there was never a good Samaritan, you would have missed the point. He said, consider these images and look at the truth that comes out of it. We as humans are story creatures. We learn very well this way too. One last point before I get into it. Even in the book of Daniel in chapter seven, if you look at the end of the chapter, it shows all the crazy stuff, crazy stuff. And then Daniel says to the angel, what was that? And the angel says, well, there's going to be four kings that rise and fall. Daniel goes, okay. Um, And what about that thing over there? And he leaves it at that. This doesn't seem to be the primary interest of Daniel, which definite kingdoms were these. So I say we follow Daniel and let's let him lead us through this as well. Okay, so let's dive into it. Let's get to the good stuff. The chapter can be divided up into three broad sections. I'm going to do a, a pretty brief cursory glance over them all, and we're going to use chapter 7 to actually launch us up into the trajectory of Scripture, of God's greater overarching plan of redemption and restoration. Three sections. Uno, four crazy beasts. It's come and get ready. Two, God's throne room, and the final part is about Jesus. Hold your applause. Let's start with the first part. Four crazy beasts. Starting off in verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Kind of rhymes, it entices you, it feels welcoming and warm. Don't be deceived. Let's keep going. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Stop right there. When you see this, this doesn't mean there were some nice waves on the lake, you know, the kind you get on your paddleboard and have a few ciders. No, think of the kind of waves that tip ocean liners and cruise ships. In the near Middle Eastern literary genre, the sea is a motif for chaos, for uncontrolled power. So when the original audiences saw this, they would regard the scene with horror, knowing that something bad's going to happen. Uh, maybe something, um, a contemporary example. At the start of a movie, you see a bunch of people hanging out in the house, chatting, having a great time, then boom, the power gets cut. They're going to die. <laughs> Someone's getting a whooping. There's a hillbilly coming up the driveway with an axe, okay? So this is, our, our audiences at the original time would have a, an, a, a comparable attitude seeing this verse as well. So this isn't good. And four great beasts came up out of the sea different from one another. I told you. All right. 
Beast number one, the first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. So that original passage that I showed from the commentator, he claimed, and there's really unanimous consensus on this, that beast number one is Babylon. If you remember a few chapters back, Nebuchadnezzar was... uh, put in the field for several years. He lost his rationality, he lost his self-consciousness, and he was like a beast on all fours, eating grass. His hair became matted to the point that it was said to look like eagle's wings. And then later on, God gave him his rationality back to him. Got a haircut, wings were plucked off, made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. So nation number one is Babylon. From there, Bob's your uncle. Let's go on to the second beast. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. Sounds pretty good. And it was told, arise, devour much flesh, as bears do. So we're two, two beasts in. The one is the, the lion with wings of an eagle, and now we're at a big old bear. Number three, after this, I looked and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. Leopards are bad enough as it is. I don't want my leopard with four wings. (laughs) And the beast had four heads. Why not? And dominion was given to it. Three beasts in. Now let's get to the very last one. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong, if the first three didn't do it for you. Let's keep going. After this, I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard. And we did that one. Surprise. After I saw this, visions. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. So all we know is this thing is terrifying and freaky. It's got some iron teeth. It's crushing stuff, and it's got a bunch of horns on its head. Ten. Seems excessive. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. I can't help you with that one. (laughs) So we've had four beasts rising out of the sea. The first was Babylon, we know that. The next three, we don't know. So what's the takeaway from this passage for the people of God? Quite simply, we see in here that nations rise and nations fall. And this should be of no surprise to all of us. The world is a chaotic place full of wicked nations that come and go. And this is no surprise to us today. So let's keep going. During all the chaos down below, the story then shoots us right up to God's throne room. It takes us to the divine council in this way. From the chaos below, let's start reading it. As I looked, thrones were placed and the ancient of days took his seat. That's referring to God. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. Now let's remember the imagery part of this, right? God doesn't sit on a physical chair. Doesn't actually have a beard and long white hair. These are images of wisdom, of power, the images of the the fiery wheels, burning flames shooting out. We see this also in other prophetic imagery in the scriptures as well. Let's keep going. 
A stream of fire issued and came out before him. A thousand thousands served him, and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. Quite simply, to summarize this, we see chaos below. Nations rising, nations falling, the four winds blowing up the great sea. And during all the chaos, we see God on his throne. God's not worried. He's not hoping things turn out well. Uh, If you remember last week, Daniel in the lion's den, Daniel didn't come out with teeth marks on him. We see a God in control. God didn't open the lion's den at the last second. I'll save you, Daniel. Put him down, lions. Toby, let go, let go, let go of him. Hebrews are friends, not food. No, not at all. We see a God in control while the world is in chaos below. However, while our God is perhaps not, um, he's neither indifferent nor unmoved. And so while he's in control, he's not impartial. And we see this through Jesus. That's his response. So let's keep reading. Uh, Let's skip this one as well. Looking for Jesus. Looking for Jesus. Looking for Jesus. Give me Jesus. Keep coming. There we go. Um, Can we get to the, the start of the Son of Man part? Which part says Jesus? No, let's go back a little bit. Just to the part that says Jesus. Bingo, we got him. All right. So during all the chaos below, God is on his throne and we see Jesus is presented before him. Let's go to the next slide. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. Jesus comes before God. Let's keep going. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Let's keep going now. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. Rightfully so. (laughs) So to recap, We see the wild word below, world below. We see God on his throne, and then we see the Son of Man, given dominion, given authority over the whole world. The Son of Man, this is not only a phrase that you see in the the Tarzan soundtrack by Phil Collins, though that's that's some of your homework for this afternoon, but this is actually Jesus' favorite title for himself. He refers to him this way, I believe over 81 times in the New Testament, and it's shorthand amongst the Jewish people for the Messiah, for the one to come. They know what this refers to. Here's a great example, Mark 14. Are you the son of the living God? And Jesus responds, I am, and you will see the son of man coming with great power and glory. He refers to him as this person. And his audiences knew this because when they heard this, they either gave their lives to him or they tried to kill him. Simple enough. This was not a neutral statement. So as we today, modern audiences in 2020, what do we learn from this? I think an easy takeaway point, the first one, is that God has already won. How do we know that? Our proof is the cross. Colossians 2 
14 and 15. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing triumphing over them in him. That's referring to Jesus. We see that God has already won. The Christian is not sitting hoping that God pulls off some crazy last minute Hail Mary and that things work out for us in the long run, you know, because right now things are a little bit crazy and indeterminate. No, the Christian operates from a posture of victory. There's a very classic phrase in in the, the Christian vernacular that as Christians, we don't fight for the victory, we fight from the victory. I tried to figure out who said that first, and online, it's attributed to like 20 different people, so I'm gonna say I made it up. You can quote Sawyer Bullock on that, on mugs or t-shirts, send me some royalties, Tyndale ain't cheap. What does this mean? It means that as a Christian, I am not subject to my circumstances. I am subject to the one whom my circumstances are subject to. That's a mouthful, I'll let you ponder on that one for a little while. So I'm not, what's the term? I'm not restricted by trying to gather up treasures for myself on earth because my treasure is in heaven. My treasure's in what to come. I'm not bound up trying to protect my image and maintain my reputation because my identity is bound up with the resurrected savior through the blood-bought inheritance of my identity as a child of God. I'm free to practice radical generosity, the currency of God's kingdom. I'm free to bless people openly. I'm free to practice the language of God's kingdom because of this. And this sounds kind of abstract and lofty, but as a Christian, tangibly there's a difference. And the difference is this. We are motivated by future grace. As Christians, we hold as precious the examples of God's grace in the past. His faithfulness, his goodness to us, both in our own lives and the history of the church and the personal work of Jesus Christ. Yes, but that's not our only source. The only life that I have left to live is my future life. All of my expectations of God are future expectations. The blessings to come are future blessings. The future examples of God's faithfulness are in the future as well. John Piper said this really well. Uh, Anything I've said in this sermon that you find moving is probably from Trumper Longman or John Piper. Piper said that we we are thankful for past grace and we are confident in future grace. We're confident in what is to come. Here's, Here's an easy example. If you're in a relationship, you're not with this person only because some fun things happened in the past. I have a girlfriend, been dating for a few years. If you asked me, hey Sawyer, why are you with Becca? I would say, well, uh, two years ago, we had a great time eating pizza and watching Harry Potter. And that was good, and it's kept me going since then. That would, that would kind of be strange, right? We think, mm, that's, that's not wrong, but it's incomplete, right? So in our relationships, divine or humanly, we take past events as perhaps indicative of what's to come. It's a good indicator of of the person. But we're also leveraging this, we're banking on it for the future. So because of who this person is, because of what I've seen now and in the past, I, I want to be with them for the future. I trust them. I'm looking to build a legacy with this person. So I'm not married, maybe one day you will all be invited 
to the registry. Uh, <laughs> you don't even have to wait till then to get me like a crock pot. You can, you can hook me up now. I got some free time to try some recipes. <laughs> oh gosh, where was, I had a great point. It's, it's gone now, it's gone now. All right, let's, let's keep moving, God help me. Oh, it was a good point too. You can tell this is my first time. <laughs> All right, now when I'm not living this way, when I'm not acting this out, when I'm not, oh, no, I'm, I'm, my, my back of my mind is still digging for it. It's, it's gone now, I'll leave it. When I'm not acting out in future grace, when I'm not living this way, what does it look like in my life? Well, many areas of, of probably my, my sinful behaviors and dispositions stem from this. But two of the most prominent ones in my life, when I'm not trusting in the future grace of what's to come, this exemplifies itself in my need for control and in impatience on my part. Let's start with need for control. So I'm a philosophy major. Um, that's usually the response I get, that's fine. <laughs> and I've read hundreds and hundreds, maybe a thousand, maybe thousands, it all blends together, of arguments against the Christian faith, criticizing the existence of God, the rationality of Christian belief, the reliability of scriptures, the historicity of the resurrection, and I've come through this process relatively uh, unharmed, right? I would say my faith is even strengthened by looking at the reasons for Christian faith. So it's been good. But nothing has harmed and challenged my own faith more than when my expectations aren't met. When things turn out differently than how I thought that they would. So there's the gap between how I thought things would happen and how they actually happened, and that fall has almost broken me several times because I expect God's plans to look like my plans in many ways. Yeah, and so when things don't work out the way that I want them to, I start scrambling. I start clawing for control, and I'm in a decent life stage to kind of convince myself that I can control things, right? I'm a young guy, I got some time on my hands, I'm kind of fast on my feet, got YouTube at my disposal. If I want something, I can get it within, you know, 12 hours through Amazon. If I wanna learn a skill, if I wanna solve a problem, I can plug holes pretty quickly. And control is this tempting, sweet siren song. But in many ways, it's one of the greatest illusions of all. And so if I'm not trusting in what's in to come and relying on my own power, I will be disappointed every time. And not because God has let me down, but I've been just following something made up in my head that's not indicative of how the world is, of how God presents himself in scripture and Christ and through the Holy Spirit in my heart. The second point, impatience. Impatience can be conceptualized as a type of unbelief in some ways. It's what I feel when I uh, feel that my plans have been distorted or changed or stopped, things don't actually line up with my five-year plan in many ways, and it's what rises up in my heart when I refuse to rest in and trust God's purposes and his plans. Now, the opposite of impatience is not kind of this zen-like, namaste, impartiality from everything in life, you know? Something goes wrong, mm. I don't care. It's not that. There's nothing wrong with valuing things and feeling disappointment when things go sideways. The opposite of impatience 
is a slow, trusting, faithful, deepening, maturing obedience to walk with God at the unplanned pace of obedience through the unplanned place of obedience. To walk with God at his pace and through his place. This is what godly patience looks like. And all of these things fall under the umbrella, future grace, godly patience, of the fact that God has already won. We are motivated by future grace. And as a Christian, I look at what is to come, not only at what is past. Simple, point one, easy enough. The other takeaway point from this, quite simply, is that God is active in our restoration and redemption. We don't see a God that is distant and far away, who doesn't care about the sufferings of his people down below. And so during the chaos, when God is in perfect control, he sends the person of Christ. The word of God comes down to redeem the image of God and bring things back to himself. There's a great Swiss Catholic theologian. His name is Hans Urs von Balthasar. You can't quote him on Twitter because it uses up half of your characters, but he says some great stuff. Christ's deed tells me two things, how valuable I am to him and how far lost from him I'd been. Someone that comes down from on high, eternity stepping into time, all power taking on the form of a baby. This is the greatest rescue mission in the history of the world, coming to redeem God's people. So Christian, if you ask yourself, have the promises of God failed? Daniel 7 offers a resounding no. Not in any way, shape, or form. So as the Christian, we can rest in this. And this is an invitation to the, the non-believer, the quasi-believer today, the Jesus is cool, but I like him on Sundays and nothing else. Would you respond to him today? When, when a sinful person meets the holy God through the person of Jesus, what they hear, what they are met with is yes. So God, do you love me? Yes. Will you forgive me? Yes. Will you accept me? Yes. Will you help me change? Yes. Will you give me power to serve you? Yes. Will you reveal your glory to me? Yes, yes, yes. We see a God that took on flesh and presented himself before us so that we could know him and so that we could join him in the kingdom that is to come. I feel like uh, I, I need to address current circumstances, otherwise this would be giving up a great opportunity and maybe even come across as a bit tone deaf in some ways. So as Christians, what a wonderful opportunity that we have to be living temples of God's presence, showing his grace, his peace, and his joy to the world around us in a very trialing circumstance. We are a hard-pressed, anxious, restless people. And as Christians, we're in the world ambassadors of God's grace, freely giving what he's given to us and sharing the good news that we have as well. So I would say, don't waste this pandemic. 
but use this as another way to glorify God in your lives. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for your word and the encouragement that we have through it, the promises that we have, not only that have been fulfilled in the past, but also in what is to come and what's been revealed through the person and work of Jesus Christ. So we thank you for all these things. And we bring our requests before you today, God, just acknowledging that we're in challenging times, that we're in strange times, and that we're in a strange position and asking that you would give us the faith to trust you, to accept your will, the confidence to be led by your spirit in the circumstances that you have for us this week and in the months to come. We lift up all those that are in challenging times, those that could use an extra boost of confidence today. Would your spirit just minister to them during these challenging circumstances as well? We love you and thank you for this. Amen.